Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture again and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And uh, I'll begin in verse 18, and I'm going to read through to verse 25. Genesis chapter 2, beginning to verse 18, and I'll read through to verse 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, your word is precious, and we thank you and praise you for it. And Father, we pray that you would help us now as we turn to your word to treasure it, to believe it, to live in light of it. And Father, we pray that our lives and we pray that the marriages represented here in our congregation would be changed as a result. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we do begin a new series on marriage. And it just happens to be my wedding anniversary. So uh, on this day... Twelve years ago, Nikki and I said, I do, and I was blessed with my beautiful and amazing wife, and she has been a blessing to me far beyond what I can express. And so this morning, we start this new series on marriage, and it's very fitting, given, uh, for me anyways, given that it's uh, my wedding anniversary. And our, me- our series is actually entitled, The Genesis of Marriage, and Genesis actually means beginning. And so for the month of January, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the beginning, to the first few chapters of the Bible, the first few chapters of the first book of the Bible, and we are going to examine our own marriages in light of the beginnings of marriage. What we see here in these opening chapters is really the beginnings of marriage. And we're able to ask questions and get answers for these questions like, where did marriage come from? What is the purpose of marriage? Why sometimes is marriage so hard? And why sometimes is marriage so glorious? And so the first message actually in this series that we're going to be considering this morning is entitled, The Goodness of Marriage. Now, some of you might be wondering this morning, well, why start with the goodness of marriage? I mean, some of you might be thinking to yourself, don't don't we all assume that, that marriage is good? And others of you might be saying, yeah, I think that's exactly where you need to start. 
Because I can think of a lot of words to describe marriage, but good would not be one of them. So who might need to hear a message on the goodness of marriage? Perhaps someone who has suffered through the pain of a broken home. Maybe your parents experienced a severely dysfunctional marriage. Or maybe your parents' marriage ended in divorce. And it tore your world apart. And when that was happening, you thought to yourself, I will never do that. I will never allow myself to be placed in a position of vulnerability where I can be hurt like that. Perhaps you've personally experienced a divorce. Maybe you didn't want it, but it happened. And you're still trying to pick up the pieces of your life. Maybe you're a young person here this morning and you're full of ambition. Ambition to be a career woman or ambition to be financially independent by the time you're 35 years old. And you think to yourself, marriage? That just seems like it, it, would, it, would, get in all the, it would get in the way of all my goals just seems like a complete hindrance and obstacle. Why would I want to waste my time on marriage? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're in a struggling marriage. And when you think about your marriage, actually, it just kind of saps the life out of you. And you wonder, could it ever, could it ever be better? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a distracted spouse. It's not that you would say marriage is bad, and you would say, you know, if I really thought about it, I don't believe marriage is bad. I just don't really believe that it's good. At least that's what's evidenced by the way you live your life, because it's not really worthy of your time. It's not really worthy of your investment. It's not a priority in your life, at least not like your work, or your children, or your friends. Maybe you think to yourself, marriage is just too restraining. I mean, one person your whole life? That just seems so antiquated. I'd rather keep my options open. You see, maybe we need to hear the message that marriage is good more than we think we do. In fact, the statistical data on U.S. marriage suggests how much we might need to hear the Bible's message that marriage is good. Modern uh, day divorce rates are nearly two times what they were in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married couples, but today only 60%. And very telling, in 1960, 72% of all Americans were married, but today only about 50% are married. And so the question confronts us. There's this significant shift actually taking place in our culture in terms of how we think about marriage. And this shift has been taking place for many years. And so the question confronts us, is marriage good? And if so, why? My friends, this morning I want us to go back to the beginnings, to the origin of marriage. And I want us to see in our text this morning that the Bible proclaims that marriage is good and it is to be celebrated. 
And we can rejoice in God because it is a wonderful gift. In order to see this, I want us to see first in our passage that the absence of marriage is not good. The absence of marriage is not good. That's our first point. Look there in chapter 2, verse 18, and we read these words. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, this is, a, this is an important statement in the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 because most of you probably know that in Genesis 1, we have the record of God creating the universe. And in Genesis chapter 1, it is mentioned seven times, which is actually the number of perfection or completeness in the Bible. It is mentioned seven times that what God created was good. So God creates something and says it, is good. it was good. And then God creates something else and it was good. And it's repeated seven times. And so there's this sense that all that God created in its completeness, in its fullness, was good. And so chapter 2, verse 18, is a stark departure from the narrative. God actually here identifies something in his good creation that is not good. And what is it? It is not good that the man should be alone. In fact, in the Hebrew, those first two words, there, those, or those two words, not good, are placed at the beginning of the sentence, the very beginning, to emphasize the fact. It is not good that man should be alone. Now let me just briefly here make a point of clarification. This, specific, this statement here is specifically related to the relationship between Adam and Eve. And it has a general application to humanity as a whole. In fact, what the Bible is teaching here is that generally speaking, it is good for a man to marry a woman, and it is good for a woman to marry a man. This has been the experience of most men and women throughout the history of the world, that they would experience at least at some point in their lives the reality of marriage. But that is not to say that singleness is necessarily bad. You have to read this in light of all of Scripture. And the Bible also affirms the goodness of singleness in certain situations. But it is good in a different way. So if we look at a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul there at some length talks about the goodness of singleness. That singleness is good... In certain situations, because it can free an individual up from the responsibilities of a spouse and a child so that they can devote themselves more time and energy to gospel ministry. And so some folks are called to singleness. And singleness can be good, and if one finds themselves single, they should use their singleness, leverage their singleness for the glory of God. But here in our text this morning, the point is that marriage is good. And it's good in its own way. And that's really in the rest of the verses here what, what we see unpacked. And so that leads us to our second point. The rest of the passage reveals why marriage is good. And the second point is this. The companionship of marriage is good. The companionship of marriage is good. Look there in verse 18. We read these words. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Now in these verses we begin to get insight into why it was not good for Adam to be alone. Notice here that immediately following the statement in verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone, God parades the many animals, the variety of the many animals and birds that he has created, he parades them before Adam so that Adam might name them. Now this was an extraordinary accomplishment on the part of Adam is an extraordinary responsibility and accomplishment on the part of Adam to name all the animals, all the birds. But why, why is this here? Do, do, do you see, like, it seems strange. So in verse 18 it says, it was not good for man to be alone. And then we kind of jump to this account of Adam naming all the animals. What's the connection here? Why, why are these two things put together? Well, there's actually a direct connection because we're told after Adam names all the animals, the very next statement in verse 20 is, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So, so imagine this in your mind. Adam's naming all the animals. He's naming all the birds. And at some point, Adam takes note. There's a bear and there's a she-bear. There's a rooster and there's a hen. There's a buck and there's a doe. There's a lion. There's a lioness. There's a bull. There's a cow. And at some point, Adam gets it. Something's missing here. There's some, in, in all of the animal kingdom, there's something that corresponds, male, female, that are related to one another. But there, I don't, I'm not experiencing anything like that. I don't have anything like that. And so by parading the animals, all the animals that God had created before Adam, do you see what God is doing? God is awakening desire. God is awakening longing in Adam. Because Adam recognizes something is missing. There was not a helper fit for him. And so what does God do? God in his grace and mercy and goodness creates the woman. He creates, as the text says, a helper fit, or your translation might read, suitable for him. One commentator has noted that this word suitable or fit literally means like what is in front of him. Okay, so, so now he sees something before him that is like him, like what is in front of him. He, this author goes on to say that it indicates a correspondence between the man and the woman. So, so notice what's happening here. Adam, who is the crown of God's creation. So God creates and he saves the best for last, right? On the sixth day, he creates Adam. He creates a man in his own image. Here's the crown of his creation. And Adam now, in this moment, is presented with his equal. Intellectually, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, 
She is his equal in all these ways. She corresponds with Adam in all these ways, and it is glorious. You see, the animals provided Adam with some sense of companionship. And we've all experienced this. I I know that, that we must have many animal lovers here this morning. And maybe you've even seen like the videos going around online where you have the, the guy that, you know, he spends many years acclimating a certain animal to himself. Maybe he got the animal when it was really young or when it was born. And, and so he lives with this animal all these years. And then he'll go into the cage with like this bear or lion or something, you know, and they're wrestling around and the bear or the lion's licking him and stuff. And there's a companionship there, right? There's a connection there. And we say, wow, that's great. That's, that's really cool. But consider this. That this, when Adam is naming the animals, this occurred before the fall. So in Adam naming the animals, there was no fear of the animals. If Adam wanted to ride a buffalo, he could. If Adam wanted to wrestle with a pack of wolves, he could. If Adam wanted to kiss a crocodile, he could. But listen, my friends. The animals were no contest to Eve in terms of companionship. If you were to ask Adam, Adam, would you rather spend the evening with a cat or would you rather spend the evening with Eve? He would choose Eve every single time, right? Listen, a dog is not man's best friend. I don't care how many times you've heard it. A dog was not created to be man's best friend. Woman was created to be man's best friend. And this is one of the glories and one of the goodnesses of marriage. And it's the reason why the most healthy, the most fulfilling marriages are based on friendship and companionship. Because the woman was created in correspondence to the man to relate to him in such a way that nothing else in all creation could. I remember when uh, my grandfather was in the latter years of his life. He was in his 90s at the time. And uh, he and my grandmother had been married for some 70 years or so. And I got a phone call and my grandmother had fallen And I went over to the house, and she had actually broken her hip. And so we called the ambulance, and they came, and uh, they got her and put her on a stretcher. And they were about to, they were taking her out of the house. And I remember them rolling her uh, in front of my grandfather's office, and he was standing there in the doorway, his office in his house. And I didn't see my grandfather cry many times in his life, but he broke down. And I remember in that moment, even verbally, out loud, him just calling out to the Lord for help. And I think he he knew instinctively in that moment that it would never be the same. And he was right. My grandmother actually went on to go to the hospital, and it took, because of her age, it took a long time for them to rehab the hip. And then she had dementia, and because of the stress of the situation, her dementia uh, accelerated Uh, significantly and she lost more and more of a sense of who she was and who others were and she was never able to return home and so we would take my grandfather to go and visit with her and be with her and and spend time with her but it was never quite the same and during that time you just knew you sensed it and he expressed it it was not good for man to be alone 
After 70 years of companionship and friendship, they missed that so deeply. And you know, you might say, well, well, this all seems kind of morbid. I thought we were supposed to be celebrating the goodness of marriage, you know. But, but listen, this, this is the point. We all have a tendency to not realize the preciousness of what we have until it's gone. And there's a sense of that. That's what's happening with, with Adam here. By parading the animals before Adam and by him witnessing this in all of creation, there's this sense of absence within Adam and he recognizes that something is missing, something's not right. And my friends, for all of us, for all of us who are married in particular, let us not take the companionship of marriage for granted. Let us not forget the preciousness of what God has given us in marriage. But let's recognize the blessing that it is. And if we are to recognize it for what it is, the blessing of the friendship and companionship of marriage, then we must make time for it. We must prioritize it. We must make space and time for unhurried time together, to talk together, to have fun together, to enjoy one another. I would encourage you to make it an appointment in your calendar and determine to keep it. Because the gift of companionship, the gift of friendship in marriage is good. It is a precious, precious gift from the Lord. Secondly, notice in our passage that the romance of marriage is good. The romance of marriage is good. So the absence of marriage is not good. The companionship of marriage is good, and then the romance of marriage is good. Look there in verse uh, 21 to 23, and we read these words. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So we've seen that in verse 18, God says it's not good for man to be alone. So notice what he does here. Again, in God's goodness and grace, he tells Adam, he says, okay, it's not good, Adam, for you to be alone. So he tells Adam, Adam, I want you to go over here and I want you to take a nice afternoon nap, okay? Because I've got a surprise for you. And while Adam is asleep, God creates the woman. And then God comes to Adam, you know, he shakes him a little bit. He says, okay, Adam, it's time to get up. And Adam wakes up and God says, okay, Adam, I want you to stay here because I've got a surprise for you over there and I'm going to go get it and I'll be right back. God disappears behind the foliage, you know, comes back around and Eve is standing at his side. Now, one of the privileges that I have as a pastor is I have the opportunity to officiate a number of weddings. And one of the things that happens in every wedding is that at the beginning of the wedding, the father of the bride escorts his daughter down the aisle. And when they arrive before me, I always ask the question, Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the answer that the father gives 
is her mother and I. And then the woman is given to the man. Do you see what's happening here in this passage? God the Father, the Father of Eve, is presenting his sweet, precious daughter to Adam in marriage. And Adam is thrilled. Adam's response, actually, in verse 23 is poetry. It's actually the first poetry recorded in the Bible. In verse 23, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And you sense, you you get this sense of longing that Adam had. This at last. I've been longing for this. I've been waiting for this. I didn't even know what it was that I was missing, but this is it. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You know, Webster's Dictionary defines romance as a feeling of excitement and mystery associated with love. A feeling of excitement and mystery associated with love. And we can say with confidence that as God the Father presents his daughter Eve to Adam in marriage, there is romance in the air. There is excitement. Adam's heart sings with poetry. There is mystery. Adam is is thinking to himself, what is this wonderful creation There is love, as Adam senses, I will forever give myself to this woman. You know, Ray Ortland is a Christian pastor. Based on this passage, he he makes the statement that the whole Bible is about romance. The whole Bible is about romance. Now, I I remember the first time I heard that. That's pretty provocative. And I was like, I like that, but I don't know if it's true or not. And so then I got to thinking about it more, and I think it really is true. The whole Bible is about romance. Think about it. God created marriage to be a reflection of the relationship that exists between Christ and his church. And the Bible begins with romance. With Adam and Eve being created and coming together in marriage to be a reflection of the relationship that exists between God and his people. And then the story of the Bible from there is the story of Jesus' relentless love for his bride, which compels him to pursue her and to lay down his life for her and to sanctify her and protect her and keep her. But then think about this. How does the Bible end? The Bible ends with romance. The Bible begins with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation, we see that there is the marriage of Christ and his glorious bride, the church. Where Christ is finally and forever united with his people. You know, I said before that I have the opportunity as a pastor to officiate various weddings. And, and the, my favorite part of almost every wedding is when the bride enters in and comes down the aisle. And here's the reason why. 
Because in that moment, when the bride comes down, it, it, it often moves me. The bride enters in and all the congregation stands in honor, right? And then you got the groom and he's standing beside me and he's like sometimes shaking with excitement, you know, just overcome with emotion and with joy. And it is such a glorious picture of what's to come. When God the Father presents us, his daughter, the church, he will will present us and when he does, when he presents the church... In marriage, all of heaven will be watching. The angels will stand in honor. And Christ, the groom who awaits us, will be beaming with pride as we come forward to him and are presented to him, the bride whom he loves, the bride whom he died to purchase, and we are united to him in marriage forever. Do you see how marriage and the romance of marriage is such a glorious picture of what God has done for us in Christ? And my friends, this means that romance and affection and passion in marriage is not just incidental, it is essential to a Christian marriage. You see, if we are truly as believers to fulfill God's purpose in our marriage, to put on display to the world the relationship that exists between Christ and his church, then romance is not optional, it's not incidental, it is essential. And therefore, pursuing your spouse, expressing affection for your spouse, doing special things of love that communicate to your spouse that you care for them and you prize them. Making love to your spouse is not optional, but it is essential to fulfilling God's purpose for your marriage. You know, sometimes we might get this sense that romance is something that we created and God's trying to take it away from us. But that's not true at all, right? you would have no idea what romance is if it wasn't for God. God is the first romantic, right? God created romance, and now God invites us in our relationship with him and relationships in our marriage to enter into the wonder and the excitement of his love. So, The absence of marriage is not good. The companionship of marriage is good. The romance of marriage is good. And then third, the intimacy of marriage is good. Look there in verses 24 and 25 and we read these words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we see in verse 24 a clear declaration of the foundation for marriage. So we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So notice here, this is not, what's happening here, understand what's taking place. What's happening here between Adam and Eve is not just a great friendship. It surely was not a one-night stand. It was not friends with benefits. Neither 
Was it merely a long-term committed relationship or cohabitating? It was marriage in its fullest sense. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So there's a breaking away from the original family, and there's a, there's a distinction that's made, and they shall become one flesh. And notice the marriage math here. It's a new entity that is formed. It's not one plus one equals two, but one plus one equals one. One emotionally, one relationally, one spiritually, one financially, one physically, one in every way. And of course, the assumption is that this union then is permanent. In fact, commenting on this very verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus then declares, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, it is this commitment to one another, this unity, this oneness, this attachment to one another that then creates the ethos, the culture, the environment that allows for verse 25. Notice verse 25, the intimacy that is described here. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this, my friends, is good. Notice here in this passage what we see is that Adam and Eve were completely and utterly known And they were completely and utterly accepted. Of course, there's a physical dynamic to this, but it is far more than physical. This intimacy was profoundly spiritual. It encompassed their entire being. So they were fully able to fully be themselves with each other without any fear or any shame or any guilt or any inclination to hide. Full, complete Intimacy. It's glorious. Now because of sin, and since sin entered into the world, we can never fully recapture this in this life. Actually, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, comments on this when he says, quote, Therefore this passage points out admirably how much evil followed after the sin of Adam, for now it would be regarded as the utmost madness if anyone walked about naked. End of quote. And that's true. Sin brings guilt. Sin brings shame. It makes us want to hide. And because of our sin and the sin of others, we don't feel safe. We don't feel like we can be vulnerable, like we can truly be ourselves. But the good news is that by Christ's redemptive work on the cross, our marriages should be the number one relationship in our lives, the one human relationship that we, ex- that we experience in this life where we get to the closest of this kind of intimacy. Because in the gospel, and here's the good news of the gospel, the gospel declares that we That for those who have trusted in the atoning death of Jesus Christ, for those who have put their hope in him, that we are fully and completely known, and yet we are fully and completely accepted. So there is a sense in which, yes, we can't recapture what Adam and Eve experienced in that moment, but the reality is, through faith in Jesus Christ, 
we do experience this. We do, even in our brokenness, even in our fallenness, we experience it in our relationship with Christ. He knows us fully and he accepts us completely. And when we receive that grace and we live in that grace, it changes us. And if you are living in that grace and experiencing that grace and your spouse is living in that grace and experiencing that grace, it changes your marriage as well. So that you don't have to lie and you don't have to deceive and you don't have to hide and you don't have to put on a mask. But we can be honest with one another about our weaknesses. We can confess our sins We can repent of our wrongdoing. We can forgive one another where we have failed each other. And we can receive one another as we are. You see, the gospel prepares us for that type of intimacy. To be known fully and completely and to be loved utterly. Friends, I hope we see in this passage the goodness of marriage. The goodness of marriage, that the companionship of marriage is good. That the romance of marriage is good. That the intimacy of marriage is good. It should be said that marriage cannot ultimately satisfy us. It was not created to do so. It's not intended to do so. Only God can satisfy our souls. But it should also be said that it is a wonderful, wonderful gift. And therefore, we should receive it and we should celebrate it. And for for those who maybe have been, as I mentioned at the beginning of our message, for those who may have been hurt by a dysfunctional marriage or a divorce in the past, you don't have to fear marriage. You don't have to clam up every time you get close to someone and there's the possibility that it could lead to marriage because my friends we see here in the scriptures that in spite of what maybe you have experienced and the real pain that it has caused in your life there is a way to pursue marriage that is good and healthy and life-giving and for those of you who are married recognize your marriage for what it is it is a good gift given to us by God And give yourself to it with with purpose and with passion and enjoy it for the glory of God. Whether we're married or whether we're not, we should all be able to rejoice and say, what a gift. God, thank you. Thank you for the good gift of marriage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your love. And Lord, we do thank you for the gift of marriage. Lord, you are so kind and good to us, and you have given us so many good gifts, and surely marriage is one of them. Father, I pray for all those who are here this morning who are married. I pray, Lord, that you would shape and form our minds, our thinking about marriage by your word. And Lord, I pray that as a result, our marriages would be increasingly healthy and life-giving. And Lord, that we would find deep joy, deep joy in the marriages that you have granted to us. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.